The reading is from Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it and laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I will tell you I will tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be a king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Well, it will be helpful to me. I hope it will be helpful to you as well if you keep that passage open, uh, whether it's on your phone or in the Bible in front of you. We're on page 1053. And let's pray as we begin. Our Father, uh, your Bible tells us that all scripture, all of the Bible, is breathed by God. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we pray that tonight, as we look at this parable of the Lord Jesus, you would be teaching us and correcting us in, um, in whichever way we need. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I took my car in to be repaired, and um, they told me to come back about four o'clock. And so I, I toddled off on the, on the bus, came back again at four o'clock, and they told me it wasn't ready yet. I would have to sit and wait in the, um, in the showroom. Um, I think we have a, a picture in case you can't imagine what that was like. Um, lots of shiny new cars, which I, I spent some time looking at. Um, I leafed through all the magazines, which seemed to be all about golf. I'm not a golfer, so that didn't take long. And, um, and then the time passed. About five o'clock, so I'd, I'd been waiting an hour, um, the receptionist packed up and went home. About 5.30, the mechanics who were left started turning off the lights. Uh, by six o'clock, I was getting quite frustrated. 
Um, I was running out of things to do, and I was asking, am I ever going to see my car again? Well, I'll, I'll leave that story hanging. You can guess what happens. Over the last few Sundays, we've been working our way through these middle chapters of Luke's Gospel. And the big question in this section is about waiting. Um, It's about waiting, not for a car, but waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. Um, Just turn back with me, uh, if you will, for a moment to chapter 17 and verse 20. So chapter 17, verse 20. Once... Having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, dot, dot, dot. That's the the verse that sets up these passages that we've been reading over the last few weeks. It's all about the timing of the kingdom. When will the kingdom of God come? When will Jesus return? How long do we need to wait? And what should we be doing while we wait? Well, in the rest of chapter 17, which you might remember if you were here a few weeks ago, Jesus told us about a day in the future when the kingdom of God will be revealed finally. And it will be like lightning flashing across the sky. That's the image that Jesus uses for that great future day. When Jesus returns as our judge, it will be unmissable. But meanwhile the kingdom of God is less visible, isn't it? It's a kingdom of people who keep on praying like that persistent widow. A kingdom of people who cry out for God's mercy like the tax collector. A kingdom of people who receive the good news like that that lovely little toddler there receiving her Christmas present, knowing that we, we can't earn our forgiveness. We have to receive it from Jesus as a gift. And it's a kingdom of people who repent, like Zacchaeus, who we thought about last week, who gave away the money that he'd stolen because he knew that following Jesus meant a change of life. Well, today we come to to the end of this section in Luke's Gospel, and it seems that the crowds haven't understood a thing. They haven't understood about the timing of God's kingdom. So uh, turn back with me to chapter 19 and verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So despite all of this teaching and what they've seen, The people still think that Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem as some kind of military leader in a blaze of glory, and he's going to throw out the Romans, and the kingdom will be revealed. Well, let's be honest. Um, We would like that too, wouldn't we? When we see uh, Christians being mocked on Twitter, when our, our friends decline invitations to church, when our families refuse to talk about religious things, wouldn't we love to see Jesus appearing in the sky in a blaze of glory so that we could say, told you so? But we're waiting. We are still waiting. Just like me in that garage waiting room. We are wondering what to do and how to pass the time. And so Jesus tells us this parable, which will tell us how to pass our time as we wait for Jesus. Well, he sets the scene in verse 12. 
A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, interestingly, this is actually a situation which the crowds in Jesus' day would have been very familiar with. Because in the Roman Empire, if you were a king of a little province like Judea, you didn't really have your own power. You had to travel, you had to go to Rome, the the seat of the emperor, and be given your kingdom, and then come back again. And actually, King Herod, um, who we know from the Christmas stories, um, and, uh, and some of his children had to do the same thing. They had to go to Rome to be given their authority. But Jesus uses this uh, situation, which would have been familiar to his hearers, to teach us about himself. You see, that man of noble birth in the parable is Jesus. And he went away, didn't he? After his death and his resurrection, he went away to God's right hand in heaven. And he's there now. He's reigning over the world. But one day he will return and his kingdom will be revealed with those flashes of lightning. If we are skeptical about Jesus' return, and I imagine some of us tonight, maybe, uh, maybe we're not Christians or we're skeptical about this. Well, this parable should give us pause for thought. You see, just as Herod and those other kings went to Rome and then came back again, well, so Jesus will return. Jesus will return to rule over this world. God has kept every other promise he ever made in the Bible, and he's going to keep this one too. Well, Jesus has gone away, but meanwhile, his servants are put to work. That's the image that we get in verse 13. So verse 13, he called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, a a miner was a coin, a a Roman coin. It was probably worth a couple of thousand pounds in today's money. Um, You could uh, do quite a lot of things with a miner. And in this parable, notice that each of the servants has been given the same thing. They've all been given one miner to invest. And so the question is, what does this miner represent? And how should we be putting it to work? Well, again, this is where the context helps us. A glance up with me to verse 10. Uh, Jesus says in verse 10, Uh, He's talking about his mission here. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That is why Jesus came. Uh, If you've ever wondered what what was Jesus doing, uh, walking around Palestine in his sandals, that's what he was doing. He had come to seek and to save what was lost. And so I take it that the, the simplest explanation of what the minor is from that context is doing the work of Jesus. It is the gospel. The minor is the good news of Jesus that Christians have been entrusted with. And just as Jesus began that work when he was here on earth, well, so Christians continue that work as we we take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we pass it on. By his grace, God has given that message to every Christian. We all have one mina or one minor. And it's, it's the question tonight is what, we're going to, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to, to invest that minor? 
So uh, the next slide, thank you. How should we be passing the time as we wait for Jesus? Well, the answer is by faithfully serving him in his gospel work, by faithfully serving Jesus in his gospel work. We are to put our minors to work, put the gospel to work, allow Jesus to use us in his service, to empower us to seek and to save the lost. Jesus does the hard work, doesn't he? It's Jesus who, um, through his spirit, who changes people's hearts, who, who convicts us of our sin, who convinces us of our need for Jesus. We don't have to do that if we're Christians. We just need to be trustworthy, faithful servants. And that is the point of this parable. Well, as we reflect on the details of the parable, um, I'd like us to notice three particular things. Three things about this life of faithful service. And the first is this. It is a time of opposition. A time of opposition. Verse 14 comes across very strongly, doesn't it? His subjects hated him. They sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. And Jesus is hated. He has been appointed king of the whole world, but his subjects don't want him. One of the the foundational psalms in the Old Testament, Psalm 2, puts it like this. The kings of the earth take their stand and, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The kings of this world, those in power, they hate Jesus. They take their stand against him. We see it, don't we, as tyrannical governments clamp down on Christians. Churches are persecuted around the world. And take a look at the, the website of Open Doors. It's, it's an enlightening thing. It's a Christian charity um, who keep tabs on where Christians are being persecuted around the world. Um, it is eye-opening. But it also happens closer to home, doesn't it? Uh, perhaps you have family members who seem to have an almost visceral hatred of Christianity. They, they tell you that you've been indoctrinated. They, they want you to give up on this church thing. It is a time of opposition. And Christians are called to serve faithfully and to trust Jesus through this time. But we can, we can be encouraged because it's not just a time of opposition. Secondly, it is a time of opportunity. Let's read on from verse 15. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for his servants, who, to whom he'd given the money, in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Now, I don't know what kind of interest rates you're getting on your savings if you have a bank account at the moment. Um, I looked online this afternoon. The best I could find was 4.5%. That's certainly better than the last few years, but it's it's fairly small, isn't it, as as a return? 
But look what kind of return you can get with your miner. That first servant, he makes 10 more. That, that is a percentage rate of 1,000%, if I've done my maths correctly. The second servant makes 500%. Both of these servants make enormous returns because the gospel opportunity is enormous. Uh, there was a survey carried out among churches last year uh, which found, interestingly, that one in three people would be interested in finding out more about Jesus because they've already had a conversation with a Christian. Isn't that interesting? We, we, we tend to think that nobody's interested. But if you, if you do the maths, that means that over 20,000 people in Maidenhead would be interested in hearing more about Jesus and the gospel if they've spoken to a Christian. The opportunity is huge. And of course, the gospel itself has tremendous power, doesn't it? Uh, we may be weak messengers, we may feel very weak, but the gospel itself is powerful. Uh, think how, for example, how that simple message of Jesus, his death and his resurrection has yielded huge returns in China, for instance, from almost no believers in the 19th century to over 44 million today. Or think about St. Mary's. Uh, those of us who've been here many years will have seen that growth in St. Mary's in our church family as the gospel has been taught. The gospel opportunity is great, and we just need to serve faithfully. Well, as I studied this parable, I was struck by, by many things, but in particular, I was encouraged by how both of these servants, servant number one and servant number two, are rewarded. Do you notice that? I like to imagine that first servant was a great evangelist. Maybe he was someone like Glenn Scrivener, who's coming to lead our Real Lives Week. Or one of those amazing people that you know at church who always seems to be bringing their friends along and talking about their faith. And praise God for our brothers and sisters like that. But the second servant, well, that, this servant seems a bit more of a plodder. I think I can relate to the second servant a bit more. Um, his, his reward is less, but he still seems to be willing to give it a go, and he does get a reward. You see, it's not about results with Jesus, is it? That sharing our faith is not about how many people we can bring along to church with us. That the reward is simply for being faithful, for being trustworthy with the message that he's given us. And what an amazing reward it is. In, in the parable, the servants are given one minor, which I said was a couple of thousand pounds in today's money. But look what the reward is. It's to become the mayor of London, the mayor of New York, the mayor of Manchester, Paris, Berlin, to take charge of cities. It doesn't bear any comparison, does it, to what we've been asked to do. The Christian's heavenly reward by God's grace, is completely out of proportion with what he's asked us to do. Our God is lavish in his generosity. What motivation that is to keep on serving faithfully in this time of opportunity. A time of opposition, a time of opportunity, and finally, a time of danger. The third servant gets us to the heart of this parable. Uh, look with me at verse 20. 
Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Well, this servant has been disobedient. He's not done what his master asked him to do. Instead of serving faithfully, he or she has kept quiet. Nobody knows that he's a believer. He's kept the gospel wrapped up in a handkerchief. Now I'm guessing we might be tempted to feel rather sorry for this servant. I I know I did when I I first read this. Uh, Particularly if we're people who find talking about faith uh, very awkward. Perhaps we're introverts. Um, Talking about Jesus doesn't come naturally at all. And so we we think, well, maybe I would have done the same thing. At least uh, he's kept it in a handkerchief. He hasn't lost it. But you see, that for this sermon, it is much more than disobedience. It is disbelief. It is a total lack of faith. How do we know that? Well, it's because he has an entirely wrong view of Jesus. Now look at verse 21. He says to his master, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. Now, maybe depending on our own religious upbringing, we might have a wrong view of Jesus like that. We see Christianity as a system of of harsh rules and regulations. Church is there to make me feel guilty. Jesus is a hard man. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth, could it? The Jesus that we meet in the pages of the Bible, the real historical Jesus, was a man of great compassion of love. He forgave when people turned to him in genuine faith. He is lavish in his reward for the faithful. He's a God of grace and forgiveness. And this third servant doesn't get that. And so in verse 22, the verdict is clear. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man? taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? Do you see, Jesus is saying, even if you were right, even if you were right, and I I was a hard man, you still didn't do what's sensible. But of course, Jesus isn't a hard man. This servant has got it completely wrong. He or she has shown no evidence in their life that they're trusting their master. They're not showing any any evidence that they are faithfully serving in Jesus' gospel work. And so the reward is taken away. The master says, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. So they said, he already has ten miners. This isn't fair. But he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing... Even what he has will be taken away. This, friends, is the punchline of this parable. Those who serve Jesus faithfully uh, while waiting for him to come back will be rewarded. They will be given more and given lavishly more. But those whose lives show no evidence of that faithful service, well, that shows that they've got no faith in him at all and they will lose out because we are saved by faith. 
The parable ends, doesn't it, in verse 27, and we're reminded of those subjects of the kingdom, those, uh, those citizens that we met in verse 14. These are the Jesus haters, and now they face the consequences. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is a, a chilling verse. But this is God's perfect justice in action. You see, if, if you or I don't want Jesus to be the king over us, if we say no thank you to our creator, then that is what we will get. We will get an eternity where the only thing of God that we experience is his justice, none of his abundant blessings. And let me say, if you are disturbed by this verse and many other verses like it in the New Testament, well, please don't let it go. Please don't walk out tonight without talking to someone about it. Come and speak to me or one of the staff. Why not come along to one of our Real Lives events at the week after next? Keep exploring the Jesus of the Bible, the God of love, but also the God of justice. But if you are perhaps like me, a regular churchgoer, then I think the real shock of this parable is what happens to that third servant. Where does he end up? That's the question, isn't it? We're told that his reward is taken away from him. But does he end up with those enemies? Is he having his... um, Is he under judgment? Was he ever a real servant in the first place? And Jesus doesn't say... Jesus doesn't tell us what happens to the third servant, and maybe that is deliberate. Because if there is no evidence in our life that we are faithfully serving, that we are investing our minor, that we are desiring to seek and save the lost, then how can we have any confidence in our standing with Jesus? Now, friends, I don't want you to be alarmed unnecessarily. You see, Jesus uses warnings like this in the Bible to to keep his genuine followers safe. Instead of being unsettled, real followers of Jesus will just be like that first and second servant. We will get on with the task that we've, we've been given, faithfully serving Jesus. And in a moment, we'll think about what that might look like in practice. Trusting our King Jesus, who enables us uh, to serve him and empowers us to seek and and save the lost. And as we do that, we can look forward, like those two servants, to a day when our Saviour comes back. When Jesus does appear with flashes of lightning and he looks us in the eye and he says, Well done, my good servant. Please be encouraged. And let me be crystal clear. This is not a parable about earning our salvation by being great evangelists. You know, even if you invited 100 people along to real lives uh, next week, if if this room was full of your guests, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, But it still wouldn't qualify you for heaven. If you spent all day telling people about Jesus, that still wouldn't be what, what qualifies you to live with Jesus for eternity. No, it is the cross of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus in your place that qualifies you. 
But, but our faithfulness in doing Jesus' work is a sign that we understand it, that we really are genuine believers. It reveals the genuineness of our faith. And so as we finish, let's think about what that looks like uh, to put the gospel to work. Well, perhaps we can put the gospel to work at school or in our offices or with our next door neighbors. And as, as our friends notice the way that Jesus has changed our lives, as they notice the peace that we have because we're Christians, as they notice how, how faith helps us through difficult times, how we are kind to complete strangers, how we are honest in the way that we go about our work. It struck me there's a, a particular opportunity coming up uh, with exam season, isn't there, after Easter? If, if you're doing A-levels, GCSEs, uh, wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be amazing if your friends see the, the peace and the calm that your faith gives you, the perspective that keeps you going? I pray that they will ask you why. We can put the gospel to work as we pray, as we pray for our friends and neighbors, as we pray for the, the Real Lives Week, as we pray for opportunities to talk to those we love about our faith. And we can put the gospel to work as we serve together. Thank you for everyone so far who has signed up to, to help in the next couple of weeks with, with Real Lives. It's a team effort, and we do it together. So whether you're making the coffee or up here being interviewed, uh, thank you. That is putting your minor to work. Well, back to my garage waiting room. I did get my car back, by the way. How are we passing the time? Are we reading golf magazines? What are we doing? Is there evidence in our life of faithful service, evidence that we want uh, to seek and save the lost. Friends, that is a question that only you can answer. I cannot answer that for you. But let me finish by sharing a quote that I found. Um, it's by a guy called Thomas Brooks. Um, he lived in the 17th century. He was a Christian minister. I think we have a lot to learn from, from Christians from previous centuries. I think we don't read them enough. But this is a, a lovely quote, and let's end with this. Remember this, that your life is short. Your duties are many. Your assistance, your assistance from God, is great. And your reward is sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing. And heaven shall make amends for all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this parable. Help us to continue to think about it this week, to, to mind the depths of what Jesus says. Lord, we are, we are sorry if we have turned our back on you. Help us to repent and to uh, turn to you as our compassionate and loving God. And if we have turned to you, we pray that you would help us to serve you faithfully in your work of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.